You're listening to Medically Unbiased. Unbiased. Offering an unbiased discussion about all things medical. See? An unbiased opinion. Medically speaking? Yeah. Medically Unbiased. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Medically Unbiased. I'm here with Dr. Robine, who uh, happens to be a colleague of mine, and he wanted to come on the podcast today and talk to us a little bit about some stuff. So how are you doing, Dr. Robine? I'm good. Thank you. That was mega fancy, by the way. What was that? That opening. That's that's pretty baller. Thanks, man. Uh, you know, I know a guy who knows a guy, a couple producer guys, you know, uh, help me uh, out. Yeah. That's <laughs> fancy. So uh, let's start off by kind of introducing you. So you decided not to go to harvard because it was just you know too yeah. easy yeah I was not impressed not impressed yeah, pedigree's yeah. not there nah stuck with uh yale was boring yale was boring spelled it wrong on my uh application letter too oh is that so, what it was uh, yeah, yeah i didn't like that yeah so i stuck with uh <laughs> university of missouri columbia okay great not columbia the university of missouri in columbia oh the university of missouri in columbia <clears throat> middle like america that. yeah little, no. little america loved it no it was great you graduated in 2003, right? 03, yep. With your medical degree, or was that no, with that cardiology? Was undergrad. That was your undergrad? Undergrad. Then um, Kansas City University of Medicine. In uh, 2007, I graduated med school. Okay. Then went on to um, residency at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Did a chief residency year there afterwards. And then up to University of Nebraska. Nice. In Omaha. Kept in the Midwest. All about the Midwest. Yeah. Midwest. Middle Earth. um, Middle America. You know, that's where uh, I grew up mostly. So uh, it was nice sticking around home. My parents, you know, still lived there throughout my education. So, yeah. And then out here, because my wife is from Vegas, she has a ton of family here. And it was um, easy decision. Great job. And now my parents live here, so it's home. And you practice interventional cardiology. For yes. the for the non medical crowd, what does that mean? Because there's so for the medical crowd, there's a lot of different interventional cardiology. You practice not peripheral necessarily vessels. Right. You're looking at core heart vessels, right? Right. So coronary. Valves. Yep, coronary and valves. That's my thing. Um, although I've kind of moved more into just general cardiology lately, uh, with a little emphasis on uh, interventional at times. But yeah, there's a, a huge spectrum in terms of uh, interventional cardiology. Okay. Depending on how much time you want to spend in the lab. You know, I started off, I wanted to be in the lab every waking moment, uh, hero, you know, Superman, get called in in the middle of the night to fin- fix a heart fix attack. Fix the STEMI. You want to save the black, the Widowmaker. Yep. The black death. You want to save the guy or the girl with morbidly obese patient. Yep. <laughs> type 2 diabetic. Exactly. Carb addicted. Exactly. No exercises. That on, was my thing. On statins and aces. Yep. <laughs> and rolling, you want to fix their heart attack. Rolling in, smoking a cig. Um, I come in with my cape, <laughs> fix the heart attack, and then go home, sleep sleep really well. You know, just really excited about waking up the next day. And it turns out that's not the way it works. It's not how it works? burned out really quick. I oh. did, at least. I, I'm not strong enough for that. So No. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I do less and less Um interventional work definitely um minimal acute type stuff so heart attacks in the middle of the night not gonna happen young guys game young guys game um and i'm not young anymore Uh, (laughs) and i like to sleep and i like my family a lot turns out yeah when when you can spend time at home all of a sudden you're like wow this is awesome i get to spend more time at home this this 
that woman over there is pretty hot. Yeah. Oh, that's my wife. I haven't <laughs> seen her in so long. No. Yeah, you forget. So anyway. the question I have for you, initial question I have for you is about COVID vaccines. I've been talking about COVID on this podcast for, I don't know, since I started the podcast, really. Just because it was, it's what's in the news. It's what's fresh. It's what's happening. And everybody's talking about it. There's always a bunch of misconceptions about the vaccine, whether the trials will actually be trials, or is it Russia spies just giving us some drug? I mean, runs it runs the gamut of stuff that's either BS and not accurate to stuff that's really accurate. But cutting through some of the minutia of that for most people is difficult because of the amount of data. And yeah. doing what you do and doing what I do, we've dug into data for many years. So knowing what you know, when, if and when the vaccine's available, will you be a first-in-line person to get the vaccine? Yeah. So the data, I think we start off there. Yeah. <laughs> what's the, I mean, what's the data? We're, 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 we've got information that we, you know, with the 24-hour news cycle that you just publish whatever comes out right away. Um, there's there's really been no chance or time to really reflect on on data you know five years from now we'll know what's uh, safe and effective but um what i get the vaccine yeah probably um i i don't so i'll, I'll give the background i'm not a, a big conspiracy theorist i don't think the government's out to hurt us or no, harm that. us um i don't think that they would purposely put out a vaccine um that they knew was unsafe or uh, not effective. I do. Th I could see them putting out a vaccine that is not effective. Um, you know, finding that out after the fact. Well, we've had flu vaccines sure. that have been that way yeah. in many years. There's yeah. a flu vaccine that'll come out, and sure. So I, I guess um, you know, risk. Uh, I think the risk is low. I think the reward is higher than low. Um, and I'm a I'm a gambler, so <laughs> okay. I'm a risk taker. So yeah, I would get it. I, I don't. I'm not uh, overly concerned about uh, the vaccine. I think. The, I think for the most part, I think worst case scenario is it's it's not effective. There's going to be some cases where you know someone gets Guillain-Barre or, or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, I would. I would. I would not hesitate to get it right now. So are you doing it to protect yourself, or are you doing it to protect your patients, yeah, or both? Both. Or your both. family? Yeah, both. Um, you know, my wife's pregnant. Um, yeah. I've got a young congratulations, child. Congratulations, Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's number four. <laughs> so the... Minivan Central. Yeah. The uh, Jack, the the youngest right now, you know, he's going to be two. They got another baby on the way. So I, I would I would get a vaccine for them, but also for me, you know. Mm -hmm. I also... But I think more important than the vaccine is just l making yourself as healthy as possible for when you inevitably get the virus. Yeah. We're all going to get it, you know? Right. So you get a vaccine, okay, great if it works, and if it doesn't, um, how healthy and how fit are you and how able are you to, uh, you know, push through and, and get through it with minimal consequences? Well, we've known that obesity is the number one comorbidity well, for this disease. Seems so, yeah. And so, ironically, obesity is the number one comorbidity for heart disease, right? diabetes, right. stroke. Pretty much everything. It's just... <laughs> It's kind of ubiquitous, the obesity epidemic. Right. So is this uh, correlation or causation kind of thing? You know, yeah, is right. This, we're seeing uh, 
because so many people are overweight, um, is, just by default, you're going to have more people getting coronavirus that are overweight because there's a lot of overweight people, you know, the majority. Oh, that's so, true. So I, I don't know. Are we um, looking at it as which what came first, chicken exactly, or the egg? Exactly. I think it's, I mean, and then either way, <laughs> you should just live healthy. You should just be as healthy as possible, I think, in general. Um, there's no question that, you know, along with um, obesity comes a lot of other issues uh and maybe covid's one of them who knows yeah well you're one to talk because a year ago you yeah. were job of the hut job of the hut obese yeah, yeah. In, no in one year no there's no no offense necessary in one year you've yeah. lost how much weight um o- over 80 pounds that's amazing um, I, I don't know how much i stopped kind of weighing myself after a while and i think i put on some muscle Obviously, I put on muscle. Just look at me. Uh, yeah, right. No, Buff. No, I, uh, I, 80 pounds at least. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. But you feel a lot better, right? Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. No, and you're not snoring through the night? I'm not. Sleeping no. better? No, no snoring, which my wife loves now. Right. Um, and Hence the new kid on the way? Yep, yep. That's because of the no snoring. It had nothing to do with the weight loss. It was all the snoring. That's that's probably a big part of it. Um, no, the uh, I definitely feel better though. Yeah, no question. That's cool. So, do you advocate this for your patients? What's that? Snoring? The weight loss. <laughs> yeah, snoring. No, just the weight loss. The weight loss yeah. in general. Do you want your patients to lose weight to feel better? And what do you do? Because I've been telling people that I advocate for like a keto diet. Mm-hmm. And I highlighted last week how much I struggle when, almost like an alcoholic. So if I just do one thing of carbs, I was driving home camping from camping and I took some Twizzlers to just to get through the drive and it sent me down this freaking rabbit hole of horrible food decisions for over a week. It was just bad after bad. I was like, well, I'm already here. I might as well just, you know. Yep devour a pizza or whatever it wasn't a whole pizza but yes um so to answer the first question yeah i uh i I don't think um putting a number a weight loss number is as important as just maybe a goal of i want to keep up with my kids i want to be able to um you know carry the baby up the stairs without being short of breath i want to be able to sleep through the night without a cpap mask um Mm -hmm. you know i think those sort of goals are, are, are are better than um maybe a number uh the number is gonna you're gonna you're gonna find a number that you like uh, yeah the number is gonna happen it's gonna happen um but then to the point of yeah the uh the going down the the rabbit hole i, I live on the extremes like that so if i uh if i'm you know very motivated i'm gonna be following the diet i'm gonna be fasting i'm gonna be you know exercising and then if i get derailed for whatever reason um yeah i'll just eat pretty much everything <laughs> it happened last night i uh you know great day i the last weekend you know i celebrated birthday and had you know too much food that was not i knew it was not gonna make me feel great and, and i i accepted that and go with still it. made the decision still made the decision yeah. so you know the shrimp etouffee and some boston cream pie and you know pizza and then uh i got back on track you know that's the big thing is getting back on track then yesterday take the kids to uh their little kumon math reading program whatever they do and I, I bring jack with me picked up some mcdonald's for them okay no shame in that no um and jack screamed the entire way so i just like already i'm i'm tipping over i, I fasted <laughs> the whole day i ate i mean then I, I ate a good snack i had a plan but the second i got that stress you know that feeling 
I got home. My dad had dropped off some baked ziti. I murdered it. <laughs> I ate so much, and I ate uh, almost uh, probably a quarter of a blueberry pie. No, wow. And immediately regretted it. But yeah, yeah no, I get tipped over easy. Easy. Yeah. No, I, I do too. I have a, I get really easy tipped over, but I have a hard time bouncing. That's the good, that's, that's the hard thing is you got to bounce back. Right. You can just completely F, F up, um, but just get right back on it. That's yeah. the thing that I have been able to do uh, better and better over the, over the last several months. I've been able to kind of bounce back easier. So do you advocate with your patients to say, look, I'm, I tell my patients, I'm a patient too. <laughs> For sure. I, I struggle just like you guys do. Yep. yep. Absolutely. So yeah. do you think patients should be able to get off medications as yeah. opposed to start them on medications? No, I love that. Uh, that that's always the goal. Um, you know, sometimes there's, there's going to be plenty of times where you have to have medications. You just have to. Yeah. Um, but I think you should always think of it as a bridge, uh, as, a, as a Band-Aid, you know, heal the wound underlying. And, uh, and certainly diet and lifestyle is, is one of the best ways to heal that wound. You can Band-Aid it with medications. You know, you might need some blood pressure medication now. But do the things that you need to do to get off the blood pressure medications later because that's always a possibility. Right. I believe that. No, I'm with you. So how many people do you see that follow your guidelines? We talked about this prior to recording this. So I, my my feeling is I'm in the 1% category. Yeah, Maybe yeah. you're more optimistic. No, I have the discussion with most patients for sure. Um particularly anyone that I'm starting on a medication. Uh, it's, it's, I want them to know that this is, you know, potentially something they can get rid of um, with some changes. Um, but 1% is probably a, a realistic estimation for how many take it serious. Yeah, follow the guidelines, yeah. lose the weight, yeah. get off it's, the drugs. It's frustrating because I, I know I know they can do it. I know that I can see a patient. I had someone the other day, you know, a guy that's uh, a type 2 diabetic um, on metformin. He's got dyslipidemia. He's got hypertension. But you just look at him, and I, I know if he just made some small changes, um, he could get off all that stuff. He could completely reverse course Everything. And, and metabolically just completely change himself. I hope he does it, but I'm not uh, – I don't see more than one percent that actually do that. It's it's sad, but I'm gonna keep. I'll keep fighting. Yeah. How dare you? That's right. <laughs> yeah. How dare you do help people? I know that's not good. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I do think there's uh, this kind of pervasive uh, belief that you know we're here to prescribe meds and give me my meds and give me the pill to to fix the number. Um, don't tell me to uh, to fix myself. You know that's offensive. Well, the, so the scale to me, when I when a patient is on the scale, it's the only thing in a doctor's office that makes a patient look at themselves. Mm-hmm. It's the mirror within the doctor's office. Yeah. So blood pressure, not my fault. Hypertension or I, I'm excuse, hyperlipidemia, not my fault. My cholesterol is not my fault. Right. I, I have bad genetics, yep. right? Yep. Well, the weight. scale's wrong too because my I had my shoes on and mm-hmm. they weigh you know fifty five pounds. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's not. This is different than my scale at home. My scale at home weighs me thirty pounds lighter. Right, because gravity is Gravity's, a lot different. Yeah, you know, it's different at home. Gravity here, we we increased our gravity in this office right. just to make the scale wrong. No, there's some it's some denial and some probably shame. Um, I think we all feel that at times. So sure, uh, I I won't. I won't beat patients up about it, but I always want them to know that they, they do have a huge um, ability to to fix their problems. 
Um, there's, these diagnoses don't have to be their lifelong diagnoses. You can have sleep apnea today. You can make some changes. And you cannot have sleep apnea in a couple months. Right. Fact. Cured. Yeah. No medications. No side effects. Uh, just some, some changes. So do you advocate specifically for keto? Um, I do. Uh, I I practice keto. Um, I think keto gets a bad name because it's uh, it's counter to everything we've been taught. You know, the, the food pyramid from early 90s that we said, uh, you know, 6 to 11 servings of grains and pastas, breads, rice, you know, cereal. Mm-hmm. But don't, don't eat fat because fat makes you fat. Um, what, what, what do we do? We made everyone you know, fat and have diabetes and heart disease and die early. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I get the looks from patients. You know, the interventional cardiologist, you're prescribing a high-fat diet. Well, I get that. I appreciate that. But I don't think that's any crazier than me preaching the food pyramid because I know that doesn't work. Right. We have, we have a lot of evidence that it doesn't <laughs> right. work. I, I do, And I think there is a, a slow shift in, you know, experts, quote-unquote, um, coming around to maybe, look, maybe maybe there's something to this minimize you know, refined carbs, white carbs, you know, sweets. and well, the Journal of American foods. College of Cardiology just recently published an article. Yeah, that was amazing. That was, that was really nice to see. It gave some validation to, uh, to, to, the, to the voodoo that I'm practicing myself and, and preaching too. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to do randomized control trials on, um, on diet. Uh, right. It's just it's it's tough to do. A lot of these studies um, are are survey based. You know, they ask someone. Well, generally, do you eat a lot of carbs or do you eat a lot of fat? And and people don't even know what they, they eat. They have no clue. So to then publish that, you know, it just it's tough. Um, so so you just have to look at trends in 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 disease processes. And and we have a lot of data from the nineties uh, until now. And the the conventional diet. Um, with with heavy carbohydrates and and minimizing fat, processed uh, foods. Lot, yeah, I mean it just doesn't work. It no, it doesn't work. So, well, I, I you're not that much younger than me, even though you're a little younger than me, and you haven't quite cracked the the forty age yet. Not you quite. did have a birthday, but you still got three hundred and sixty five days. <laughs> yeah, before you're over the hill. <laughs> Damn, I know, right? No, nah, it's all right. It's okay. It, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not cl- scared. I'm closer down to uh, 60 than I am to 20, though. Medicare is, age. I'm on my way. Can't wait. No. I'm Medicare for all. AARP. You know I mean? I'm going to get it that first day. <laughs> no shame. No, not at all. I already get the magazines, but that was only because they were mailing them to my mother-in-law. Yeah. And uh, I read them because I want to keep up with what my patients are going through. Why not? See, that's good. Yeah. You got to say pay attention. So your average cardiac patient is how old, mm. would you say? What do you mean, cardiac patient? Like so, so your average. You said you wanted to move instead of doing interventional. You're starting to move towards a more, you know, office based, mm-hmm. you know, general cardiology based approach. Yeah. What do you find that your average patient load uh, age is? Because I seem to run sort of all over the map because I see all of your patients, <laughs> not true. yours, but I mean the practices patients. I see yeah. a lot of different people, and I know that. As as a young physician, you know you're what ten years into this now. Yeah, uh, right at five, ten. Uh, yeah, five years. Uh, big boy job since fellowship. You so know, five years since fellowship. Years, okay, so five years since fellowship, you're generally going to get the newer patients, not the long term established patients, right? For sure. Yeah. So you're going to have a younger patient base. So yeah. would you view your group of patients as average of fifty years old? And maybe a little older. Maybe maybe sixty. 
okay. around there. I definitely don't have as many of the octogenarian and beyond as some of my partners that have been around for many, many decades. Um, right. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a younger population that I see. So do you think that as you progress and grow, you're going to keep those patients or is your goal to okay. constantly <laughs> get new patients and get rid of, not get rid of the patients because you don't like them, but phase them out because they're healthier and don't need you anymore? Yeah, I mean, that would be great. I hope they're not, uh, I'm, I hope I'm not seeing uh, fewer older patients because they're, they're all dying off because of me. No, no, uh, but I hope not no, they, uh, Yeah, that would be great. You know, see patients, get them on the right track, have them reach whatever goal or goals they, they, they've set, and then, you know, move on. Right. Here if you need me. Um, I'm, I'm, I am a catch and release, very much a catch and release um, provider where I don't, I don't tend to hold on to patients for a long time because I trust in the primary care doctors and, you know, trust that they're doing the right thing. And if they need me, I can always see them. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, a, a under, under 60 kind of population would be uh, uh, pretty reasonable. Pretty average for you. Yeah. That's cool. So when it comes to that population, are they more capable of losing weight and getting better than someone say 80 years old do you think that someone who's 80 is beyond the ability to change their body phenotype and be able to change you know their exercise tolerance or do you think someone who's 80 and above can can change drastically change that can change my my immediate thought was of a patient of mine that uh he always brings in woodworking that he does you know he, he built my daughter a uh, like a little jewelry box and my son, this little compartment. You know, it's just really cool woodworking stuff. Awesome. And he was overweight, uh, AFib. Um, I want to say he's probably in his mid-70s. Uh, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He came in and the guy was svelte. He was leaned out, um, massive changes. Okay. And, and he's not a young guy. So, no, I, I don't think there's an age that, that you know precludes you from being able to make big changes. Probably easier, um, you know, when you don't have, seven eight decades of of bad habits under you but yeah i, I think anyone can do it i know they can I, I think it's easier for you if you don't have kids at home too oh yeah because yeah. you're grazing on all their half-eaten food it's probably true I, I do that too i call it the garbage disposal whenever my <laughs> kids are done eating i just whoa, whoa, whoa where's that going don't put that in the trash i'm gonna eat that well, you know where that at least for me i feel that comes from my parents who would say you eat everything on your plate you don't waste anything we don't waste food here yeah probably, probably. all those lies that our parents told to us right. has caused us to have this horrible habit of finishing other people's food right right no we i think we've been instilled a lot of uh, maybe not maybe not bad but misinformed advice you know yeah breakfast is the most important meal of the day and that was an advertising know, campaign just what a bunch of bull junk yeah um so yeah whatever we're, we're we'll 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 make do but my kids are the same way they they're probably more wasteful than they should be <laughs> well my kids are really wasteful and uh it's not always a good thing because my wife will either finish it or i'll try and finish it or it's just and i'm bad because i don't feed my kids super healthy food because i would Same. much rather just give them a damn Oreo yep. than listen to them bitch and moan about having to eat a carrot. Yep. Same. Uh, you know, I preach, you know, healthy eating and good dietary choices and my kids admittedly don't eat that way. Uh, but I don't think you should have shame about that because as long as you're making sure they understand that there is a choice, they have a choice. Yeah. This or that, this may lead to this, this may lead to this. Um, 
I think if you do that enough, they will ultimately make better choices more often than not when they're older. That's my only goal. So. Yeah. So Robert Lustig says the presentation, Dr. Robert Lustig says that you have to present a savory food to a child six to eight times hmm. before they'll accept it. And if you present a sugary or carbohydrate-laden food, it's one time and they're addicted to it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a lot of uh, neurotransmitter-type uh, dopamine hit. Well, that's what he studied there. Yeah, yeah. When he was studying at the National Institutes of Health, that's what he studied. So, Well, it's crazy. I can do that with Jack. You know, you, you give him, uh, what was I trying to feed him yesterday? Um, I can't remember what it was. But you, know, you give him like a, a scrambled egg, right? Okay. A bite of scrambled egg. I mean, the kid's gagging. He's, he's a year and a half. He doesn't know any better, but he's gagging. <laughs> right. But you give him a, you know, a cookie, boy, he's all over it. Yeah, it's devour it. Yeah. So. All right, well, let's go to break for a minute, and we'll come back with uh, our next topic. How's that sound? Unbiased. All right, we're back with Dr. Robine in the office today. So, Dr. Robine, you said that you're feeling a little bit of burnout, or you could see yourself going that way if you didn't change what you were doing. Is that true? It's true. So, what are you doing to change other than getting out of the cath lab? Uh, you know, I am making time for exercise, and as okay. we drilled on, uh, making better choices with food, developing a better relationship with food. That all gives me more energy, uh, for sure. Um, procedurally, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking on the crazy high-risk cases that would, you know, ultimately keep me up at night. Worry you, uh, stress you yeah, out, yeah, there sure. was problems. Yeah, I think, I don't know if patients realize that, that, you know, we, we do get impacted by good and bad outcomes, um, that's again a massive dopamine hit, which I don't think many of us are prepared for. Um, you can have a great outcome and you're on cloud nine, and then a, a bad outcome and just come tumbling right back down. It's yeah. inevitable. You can't get away from that. Um, so I, be, I think better, you know, selection on on what I'm comfortable taking on in terms of a case, uh, and and not having the ego to say, oh, I can do anything. You know, right can and should big big <laughs> difference between the two yeah i can do it or i should do it right so um i think technically I, I, I have the skills to do it but um i'm not willing to you know sacrifice mental health or a ton of, uh, of extra time to do a, a high risk case that someone else might be very very excited about doing <laughs> right well i think when it comes to super high-risk cases, there are certain physicians who specialize in those high-risk cases, and they oh. do enough of them that it becomes the norm for them. Right. So no longer do they have risk. They've actually minimized the risk because they've spent a lot of time doing it. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're talking about risk, you know, if someone does a case with me and I don't do a bunch of those versus someone else that does a ton of those, then their risk is going to be lower with the high-volume high operator, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, take chronic total occlusions, you know, a particular type of blockage in the artery, uh, coronary arteries. Those can be incredibly complex, um, and 
you have to do a lot of them to be good at them. Um, Without damaging anything in the process of removing all the occlusion. Ultimate goals, right? Do no harm. Um, And those are cases that I won't even do anymore. I won't touch. I will send them, actually, most of the time I'll send them out of Vegas uh, to Southern California because these these docs out there, they do a ton of them. Yeah, Uh, super high volume. Yeah, they're cowboys. And and they're obviously more comfortable. So, yeah, that relative risk is lower um, with, with... docs that are doing a ton of those cases right but yeah that's how i one of the one of the ways i minimize my own you know my i try i guess i transition out of the lab and into more office based is is by minimizing the number of crazy cases i'm doing that's cool yep i I think i've done the same thing not necessarily by minimizing the number of crazy cases because i don't do crazy cases but by minimizing the stress load of the severity of my patients yeah you know so when I was an ICU nurse, I cared for the sickest of the sick, and I was hungry. I wanted the sickest patient there. Right. Give Challenge. me the person with all the drips, open heart, yeah. you know, whatever. Give me the sick. And it's kind of nice that I can have an honest-to-goodness conversation with a patient now that's ambulatory, comes yeah. in and out of my office, and I can help them get healthy. But, again, it's the 1%. Right. So part of my scare is that I beat my head against the wall because I'm talking to 100 patients in you know, a week's time. Yeah. And one person. So I do all this preaching and talking and discussing yeah. while trying not to be a hypocrite myself right. by doing the exact opposite of what I'm asking them to do. Right. And then to have them not do it and then come to me and be like, I just need the blood pressure meds, man. I I can't do this diet. It's horrible. Yeah. Just give me the cholesterol. I'll, I'll go on the Torvastatin. That's all I need. Yeah. So what's the number needed to treat to save one life? You know, and what's the burnout from if you see 100, you save one. Um, you know, what's the, what's the, the tax on your own personal health by seeing a thousand to save 10, you yeah, know, it's, it's, right. is it worth it? Um, today, today it is, For I me can't, too. Yeah. I can't say that tomorrow it, you right. know, it won't be, but that's part of the burnout process, right? Right. Yeah. And I think you're allowed to change. I think you're allowed to have different passions at different times. I think it's healthy to do that actually. And just, um, you know, adapt. Yeah. What did Michael Scott say? Adapt, readapt. Adapt or die? Was that what it was? Adapt. (laughs) (laughs) Incomprehensible. Um, But yeah. yeah. So what's your other passions when you're not at the office or you're not chasing your kids around town, running them to everything going on? Well, I'm a big golfer. Golf, for sure. I'm getting more and more into golf. Uh, because that's what you're supposed to do, I guess. No, I, I, as I a like doctor, golf. you're supposed to golf. Is that what you're telling me? I think so. That's what they say. That's what they did on Caddyshack. Remember the doctor <laughs> with, the, with the, the pager? That's true. He did. Yeah. Um, no, I, I like golf. It's it's very social for me. I, I have a, a group of, of friends that we play together um, pretty frequently. Um, for sure, in the exercise realm, uh, some CrossFit. Which I don't know if CrossFit's as popular anymore because that Yahoo that used to own it just got um, oh, yeah, in yeah, trouble because he's a schmuck. Uh, but you know, resistance training—I uh, think that's that's been a new thing for me. I've had a lot of fun with that. So the CrossFit thing for a long time, people were you know dumping on it because it was yeah. causing lactic acidosis in patients, or yeah. you know people were coming in the hospital with rhabdo. horrible rhabdo. Yeah. Um, 
do you think that's because they were training improperly or they were going way too hard and shouldn't have been? Or yep. is that just because of the process of doing CrossFit? No, I think, well, maybe a little bit of both. I think a lot of it was you've got, uh, you know, take me a year ago, mm-hmm. put me in a CrossFit class, and I'm way too competitive. I'm going to go nuts, and <laughs> that's not good for you. Right. And I'm going to get rhabdo. Or I'm going to get injured, you know, or mm-hmm. both. Um, so I do think that there, there are some things um, – in CrossFit in particular, and a lot of these high-intensity um, interval-type classes, which I, I do think is probably the best for you. But when, you, when you're lifting heavy things repetitively for a time and you don't drop that weight as the time progresses, you're only increasing your chances of injury. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the one thing I do uh, is I make sure that... Start heavy. And I, and I just work my way down. As I get more fatigued, my form is going to fail, and you know that's just a recipe for disaster. So... Um, I think, uh, you know, just being aware of what you're able to do and not try to do too much too soon. And then I don't think the risk of, you know, rhabdo in general is going to be incredibly high. Um, just go easy. I tell patients, you know, that if you're starting off and the way I started off, this is most of the things that I'm preaching are very, you know, personal experience, um, you know, I, I did this, this worked for me, try this out. And I seriously started by walking. It sounds silly, but I did dedicated walking time and it was with my family. So it wasn't, I wasn't missing out on anything. We were bonding. Uh, but I, I got a little wearable. I think it was a Fitbit originally. And, uh, I, I made sure I got 10,000 steps and then that parlayed into, you know, the, uh, cath lab was doing some sort of, uh, you know, weekday, week, week long competition where whoever got the most steps won. I'm super competitive. So I made sure I won <laughs> and that included walking around, um, my house in the, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, before midnight, before the time change. Is that uh, what prompted you to buy a treadmill for your office? That was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> I bought the treadmill because I bought the standing desk uh, with the idea that, you know, moving, I, I think it's an amazing idea, uh, and I wish I did more of it, but um, it turns out that it gives me just profound vertigo. Oh, <laughs> so, really? Yeah, I just couldn't focus on the, on on the, the computer while, while you're walking. walking. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, it's cool to be able to look down and say, hey, I got 20,000 steps and I'm not even done with work yet. But then I'm vomiting on the floor, so uh, yeah, that's no, no, it wasn't it wasn't a great idea. But um, no, so the the walking turned into, um, you know, I start seeing some benefits, start seeing some results, and again, I have a, an addictive personality, and I get addicted to the process, you right. know, so that um, that see a little change, um, feel a little different, and then that just I amplify that and, and took that to the gym. And I did some running, and then I add some weights, and then I ended up, you know, doing CrossFit. But I tell patients just start simple. Just start with walking. It's, yeah. I understand that you walk to the, you know, to the uh, mailbox, and you walk your dog, but do 15 minutes more of dedicated walking. That's it. Okay. Do that for a week, and then do 16 minutes the next week. Do 17 the next week. Work your way up, and, and at some point they'll hit that. I think it's a healthy addiction that that just that drive to, you know, continue gaining, uh, and they'll do more and more. So start simple. That's cool. I like it. Start simple. It's uh, it should be, that should be a rule for life, right? For sure. All right, man. You have anything else you want to add to this whole podcast? Negative. Negative. Can't think of any negative. Ghost Rider. Fun though. Yeah. Yeah. This is the last one. I'll have to do it again. We'll have to come up with the, 
I'll actually come up with some topics for you for next time. Yeah. I'll make you do some research or something. Not I'll that you don't have research. enough time, you know what I mean? But No, no, I, I, I love doing research. I love learning about new things. And I'm, uh, I'll be the first to admit when I don't know something, and that's a lot of the time. Well, I, I don't think all doctors do that. I think, no, I think no. a lot of doctors. So I think patients want us to have all the answers, all the answers, yeah. not some of the answers. And as we speak, as we as medical providers specialize and become more and more specific in each specialty, I think the answers that we have are less and less. And the idea of that old school Midwestern where you're from doctor that knew everything and gave the kid with heartburn a Dr. Pepper to make him burp. So he'd feel better as opposed to giving him Pepsid. (laughs) I mean, those days are, have come and gone. I I hope so. Yeah, I mean, that Midwest doctor, he didn't know what he was doing a lot of the times. Promise. No. I promise. No, no, he didn't. But I'm saying the perception oh, yeah. of the general public, I think, is that that doctor was smarter. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's um, – we, we definitely I, – I tell my wife this. I don't, I don't really like doctors. Uh, I am one. But <laughs> and I, 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 I shouldn't say that. I, I have a appreciation for you know everyone. That's, it's a service job, and, and I think everyone's doing their best. But um, – we don't we don't know everything. Um, I think unfortunately we sometimes try to act like we do and maybe say things off the cuff that we don't have a ton of uh, uh, of understanding about, um, and that's maybe just human nature. And maybe it's a, a function of us being in this kind of authoritarian. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be really smart and knowledgeable, and, and we are for the most part. Um, but. I'm not afraid to say, you know what? I don't know what's going on. I got no fucking clue. I got no yeah. clue. But, <laughs> but I'm going to do what I can to figure it out. I'm going to get you to the person that does have the answer, uh, and we'll learn something along the way. Some patients will appreciate that. Um, some people, some patients will want you to have all the answers. There's no question. And then when you don't, they're on yeah, Yelp, they're, writing yeah. a Yelp review about how much of an idiot you are yeah. because you didn't have the answer right. that they I, needed right. for their you know, whatever non-cardiac related problem. Right. Or even if it's a cardiac related issue, getting back to, you know, these complex cases, if I'm not comfortable, I'm going to get you to someone that is comfortable doing it. And then I think is going to do a good job and that I would go to myself. And, um, I don't know that that should be a negative hit on me. I think that's a, a positive actually. I think that I'm, I'm trying to do what's best for the patient. And yeah. sometimes that means I don't have the answer, but someone does and I'll find them for you. No, I, I think, I don't know. It's kind of weird because the older the patients are, I realize that they want you to have all the answers. The younger patients are more okay with me saying I'm not sure, but we need to find out. Probably true. Yeah. And I I think it's just a generational thing. It's how it was at one time. The doctor, you know, the doctor, when I was a kid, the doctor was godly. Right. You know, you went to the doctor for every ailment, no matter what it was. You went to the doctor, not a group of them. Right. Or there was one guy, Dr. Yeah. Kirsch, back home, was the doctor, and he, everyone went to him. If you were born, he delivered you, and if right. you were dead, he you know, wrote your obituary, <laughs> wrote the death certificate. Yep. And yep. he was the guy. And then the, those small towns need that kind of thing. Um, but I think uh, it's just not me. <laughs> it's just not me. I don't know what else to say. If you could, one parting question, if you could create a practice from thin air yeah so in other words you're you're an intermetric cardiologist you work with a bunch of really great cardiologists in a practice Mm -hmm. what would you bring to the table or how would you change your current 
office practice, what would you do to enhance it to make a better practice if you yeah. could just out of thin air create one? Yeah, I think it would it would be and part of this is is a setup um, just by the way the system works. You know, you get reimbursed for uh, ordering a lot of tests, doing you know procedures, um, and, and less so on outcomes. Um, and that, that that puts us all in a position where we want feel like we have to prescribe that med, you know, and do this procedure, and and we want the instant gratification. You mean because um, Medicare and Medicaid sure. are incentivizing you absolutely to do that, as yeah. opposed to incentivizing you for not doing it, right? And, and I, guess, I mean, if you're going to get reimbursed, uh, you know, ten times more for ordering a, a nuclear stress test on a patient than you would spending an hour with the patient, saying, "Okay, tell me what you eat, tell me how you sleep." Tell me what stresses you out. Um, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of a broken system. I, I don't, and that's not to say that you, patients don't need tests. Absolutely do, but uh, don't discourage us from just uh, talking and, and making recommendations and trying to figure out more about the patient because I think that is going to get you more of a long-term lasting effect. Yeah, you know, if you're more human about it, for sure. Yeah, yeah and then think about you know if I if if you have a metric that says. Uh, you know, we, we do have this, you know, uh, for, for certain Medicare, you know, uh, guidelines, you, you have to document the patient's blood pressure and needs to be less than 140 over 90. Um, so that's a, the knee jerk is to say, well, I'm going to prescribe a medication. I'm going to get you under 140 over 90. Great. That person's probably going to have really, you know, good metrics. But if I can get a patient to make some changes to their life and, get their blood pressure below 140 over 90 and not be on a medication and not have side effects to a medication, I think both I and the patient will be healthier and happier, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm right. not going to be stressed out. And they're going to be, you know, feel a sense of accomplishment because um, they did something on their own. You know? So what would you bring to this practice or a practice if you – so would you, yeah. would you need to change anything that you're doing or just keep doing what you're doing? Or would you add like – Having a physical therapist or a trainer, physical trainer there to be able to just anytime a patient wants to talk with someone and learn how to do lift weights yep. or exercise, build an exercise program. I'm not a fan of dietitians. No offense against all you dietitians. That all look, there's probably five people listening to this flipping podcast right, right. now that'll ever listen to it. Hi, and mom. Yeah, dad. thanks, mom and dad. You guys are awesome. Yep. Um, and my wife, only if I pay her. But <laughs> the rest of the people in the system that are listening. I'm not a fan of dietitians because I feel like they follow the general dietitian, registered dietitian follows the stereotypical food pyramid guideline. But if you could have somebody who followed your protocol, like a keto based diet or someone who was willing to add intermittent fasting that could help these patients prepare food. Yeah. You know, do you think that would be beneficial? I know there's been physicians in town that have created a practice like that to where it was more not holistic, but it was more, you know, whole patient right. approach. Yeah, that integrative health, functional medicine type thing. Yeah, um, and I think that's uh, that's a great idea. I don't know what what dietitians are learning in school anymore. I don't know what they're kind of preaching, but it does seem that the patients that I see, at least, um, they're they're still being fed the same. You know, keep eating. Make sure you're eating. You know, twenty five small meals to keep your metabolism <laughs> stoked uh, because you don't want to go into starvation mode, which is just not it's just that's scientifically false right. um it's just not it's not it's not a thing um 
So, and I don't know, maybe they are now learning more about the benefits of fasting, the benefits of, of, uh, minimizing carbs in general. Um, but yeah, I think a, a practice that incorporated some sort of functional nutrition or, or integrative, you know, dietary, uh, counseling would be super beneficial. Um, I think having a therapist, whether it's cardiac rehab for us in particular, because mm-hmm. our patients are cardiac, you know, we send patients to cardiac rehab, but yeah, having that in your own practice would be, would be nice. Um, having, uh, you know, a mental health, uh, a, a therapist, um, a health coach, you know, a life coach. Why not? I think all that stuff under one roof would be amazing. So how does one go about facilitating that? Because right now I think it's very difficult to get the reimbursement dollars available to have just that sitting here. Yeah. Now money matters. You know, how are you going to incentive? How are you going to make that financially viable? I guess is a big question because certainly insurance isn't going to cover it. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't really put together a plan. Um, but I think there's a way to blend the two, um, you know, conventional medicine and and more of a, a you know an integrative approach, uh, focusing on diet and and mindfulness and and you know exercise and and all that good stuff, uh, the stuff that we don't talk about and then we don't ever learn about in medical school. Yeah, I mean, how much time did Zero. you spend? Zero. Zero yeah, hours and, in diet and nutrition and, in medical school. And you hear that, you read about that. People say, you know, I only had. A couple hours of uh, of nutrition. That's bullshit. No, you didn't. You didn't have any. I, no <laughs> one gets dietary. If if we did, I skipped that class, um, and it was not more than an hour. Um, <laughs> no, we don't get anything. Nothing at all. But then, but then, what's scary is then when we try to preach to patients and tell them, "Hey, you should eat this, not that." But yet we don't have any education. Right. We don't have any formal training. Um, That's myself included, too. And that's why I said I I use a lot of this as kind of an anecdotal or, you know, personal experience with uh, this particular diet, this particular training regimen. It worked for me. But I don't have training in that. But you spent a lot of time researching it. So don't sell yourself short. Because I I remember you would spend, I'm talking hours, you spent more time probably researching that. I've read every bro science article out there. <laughs> um, I've I've literally, I have done a lot of uh, you know research, if you could use that term, on uh, on various diets and fasting plans. Um, how much of that is truly based on science? You know, that's that's questionable. I'll be the first to admit that, but um, I don't think any more questionable than saying follow the food pyramid. You know, well, we but we know the food pyramid was created by the seventh country study that was manipulated data from. Yeah, you know, it was funded by, you know, sugar, corn the, and grain farmers, right? So, right. their uh, their lobbying arm right. funded it all. Yeah, I mean that's that's fact. Um, you can fact check that, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, go but to go to our thing. Twitter account and blast us for saying that we're wrong please do and i'll i'll click the facts i'll put them in there for you if you if you question me i'll be happy to show you where all that data is found and i think i think it's a it's a it's a really good discussion i think any any discussion can be very productive yeah i think having a dietitian come in and talk about why you know a patient should eat 25 small meals a day and focus on, you know, steel cut oats and put honey on top of it. But as much as I don't believe in that, I think there's utility to to having that discussion. You know, we can all learn something. Not probably not going to buy into it in the end, but you know, it's just information. It's all good. Yeah. But I think 
I think we're full of information. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. Mm-hmm. They're full of data, and it's all bullshit. Yeah. There's a lot of crap data. There is. So, my, you know, patients come to us looking for the proper information. And I find that I spend an inordinate amount of time digging through a bunch of false stuff right. and finding ways to either debunk it or understand why it's like even the study was set up pro- improperly, right. you know, be so that I can explain it in a manner to the patient. Cause no, they don't read, right. you know, studies all day long. No, it's tough to, to read, to truly read a study and to kind of pick out what's, uh, what's legit and what's not. I mean, even the most recent um, keto uh, article I read was funded by a keto company. So I'll be the first to admit that's shady. Yeah. I mean, that's that, yeah. that, that raises questions, but, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's all a good discussion. It's, and, and you're, you're set up to fail because you're, you know, you're, you're a one man, um, fighting this fight, but there's a, there's a 24 hour news cycle. There's social media influence everywhere and all the time at your disposal, they can't get a hold of you as no. quickly as they can get a hold of Twitter, um, yeah. and so so you're, you are set up to fail. So the only the only defense for that is to just keep pushing, you know, just keep pushing. Well, and your parents, so you you wouldn't think your mother was out to kill you. So why would she give you My bad mother. advice? <laughs> I'm not sure. No, no, I'm just joking. No, I, I, that's exactly. Your mom's right. a sweetheart. What are you talking about? No, she is. She's and she is incredibly. Um, uh, alternative thinking, put it that way. Okay. Um, she's, she's, she's a physician also. Both my parents are docs and, and, uh, my mom is, is, I would say I'm following more along her lines where it's, you know, maybe medications aren't the right answer at this point. Maybe we can do this with just some changes and in, in lifestyle, but, there you go. um, yeah, you're, you're, you're taught from a very young age. Breakfast is so important, you know, eat your, uh, eat your toast. Um, now we eat, Dave's killer bread with like <laughs> 500 seeds on it that are just inflaming Full, your whole body. Right. Um, but you know, just keep it. But, but it says, it says it's healthy. The box of Cheetos or Cheerios, excuse me, says it'll help lower your cholesterol. Well, it's gluten free. Yeah. Right? It's, it's gluten. It's a gluten problem. Yeah. Um, they are good though, man. I eat a handful of, uh, That's the problem. honey nut Cheerios the other day. Ugh, that's another thing. Like I'm feeding the baby and I'm giving them some Cheerios, man. I'm going to just, I'm going to take a couple handfuls yeah, right. uh, and feel horrible. Uh, <laughs> but you know, was it worth it? No. Get back on the track, get back on, uh, don't get derailed too long. That's the whole point. So you mentioned that your parents are both physicians mm. and their careers probably have changed over in the course of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. You've seen things change and then you've specialized, right? In yep. cardiology. Would you advocate for medicine? So right now, a lot of people are not wanting to advocate for their kids to go to become police officers, right? Because of yeah. all the drama. Yeah. Would you advocate for your kids to be doctors? Uh, don't care. Um, my parents didn't care either. And they never pushed me one direction or the other. Um, in fact, I think I had a unique situation where I get to see all the negatives. You know, you think you get to see the positives. Well, you get to see the negatives, too. I get to see my parents on call, my mom in particular you know, getting called in the middle of the night that wears on you. Um, and, and you know, they, they can't be as present for missing you know, school programs. Exactly. That kind of stuff. So, um, no, I, I wouldn't, I uh, wouldn't, you know, push my kids towards that, that career path or I wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade them from that either. I think they make their own choices. Um, I can tell you just from historical, uh, uh, situations here, my daughter passed out 
full on passed out after she looked at uh, an IV that my wife had put in had, had put in. <laughs> so she ain't going to be any kind of doctor. She wants to be a vet, but that doesn't have to give uh, animal shots. That's so awesome. I think that's called a, like a pet sitter. <laughs> I don't think that's like a real thing, but um, no, I, I don't think either of my kids are <laughs> medically inclined. They, they don't seem to have a passion for that. And I'm totally fine with that. Were you, but were you medically inclined from an early age? Yes. Is that where you wanted yeah. to be? Yeah. I wanted to, uh, I, I feel like I was pretty young when I had decided that I wanted to be a doctor and, and, and young when I kind of chose cardiology too. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember my dad showing me an EKG. Um, oh, I can't remember how old I was before high school for sure. Um, and, and just, he was explaining to me, you can see, you know, rhythm of the heart. You can, you can tell about, you can get some suggestion of, you know, size of the heart and maybe thickness of the chambers, the electrical patterns in the heart. Some of the, it's, and that just blew my mind from an electrical tracing. I can find so much out about an organ. Um, that drew me for sure to cardiology. Um, I'm not strong enough to be a a family practitioner because they are, they have to have their finger on every pulse you know they have to know a little bit about everything a lot of about everything um and i just wasn't as i wasn't patient enough that was too instant gratification okay so cardiology fit that too (laughs) it's like heart attack fixed like the old orthopedic joke you know you know broken bone hammer nail broke bone man fix broke bone fix saw you know (laughs) um i I like that you're a jock right you did you play ball and stuff i played in high school so that um, yeah. th- isn't stereotypically you'd become an orthopedic guy? I should have, yeah, I guess so. Is, um, that's the, where they go, right? No, my brother-in-law is an orthopedic surgeon uh, <laughs> up in Portland. Um, I, I don't. I think he did play some sports, but uh, he, he doesn't fit the, the mold of the, the jock thing. He's super cerebral and, uh, and, and into things that I think most surgeons probably aren't. Like we have a one-wheel obsession. Oh, yeah, the one-wheel. Yeah, he taught me about that. He, he got one way before me and then... But anyway, uh, now you're on the one wheel. Yeah, yeah. Just waiting to actually, I'll have to probably meet a North Peak surgeon soon for when I fall. <laughs> <laughs> just, you just get your brother in law speed dial. Yeah, well, I have him on speed dial. Well, there you I don't go. Know if I want to go to Portland, though. You know, <laughs> that's true. You might get attacked. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> today it's crazy. I know it's insane. Crazy. Well, man, I really appreciate you joining us on this the podcast fun, today. Man. We'll yeah. do this again for sure. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. All right, man. You've been listening to Medically Unbiased. Visit our website at medicallyunbiased.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Medically Unbiased. Listening to this podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship. The Medically Unbiased podcast is for general information purposes only. Thanks for listening.